Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by the distinguished writers and recent Frankie visiting scholars, Peter Cole and Adina Hoffman, discussing their recent book, Sacred Trash, The Lost and Found World of the Cairo Geniza. So, thank you, Maria. Thank you, everybody at the Whitney who's been involved in making us so uh, comfortable here and feeling so much a part of this institution, uh, Stephen Fry's Judaic Studies. Um, you know, it's great to be back at Yale, as always. And thank you all um, for coming. Um, as all of you pretty much know by now, I probably have been bludgeoned to death with this uh, title, um, our book is called Sacred Trash. And I think it's safe to say that um, many of you are here probably because you're at least, you're interested or at least willing to hear what we have uh, to say about the sacred. But it's a, probably a safer bet to say that uh, our suspicions are probably going to be confirmed that uh, most of you are here because you're interested in, about, in the trash, um, which is to say, among other things, how it is that a married couple managed to write a book together. Now we're going to do this today. <laughs> right um, but more substantively, um, our title emerged really completely organically from our work. In fact, so organically that neither one of us can really remember uh, where it came from, uh, which means that she probably thought of it. Um, but it's true, we really, at least she wouldn't admit, uh, I can't remember where it came from. And it did float up, and it seemed to be perfectly apt when it appeared to us, because as we settled into our story, uh, which we'll tell you today, um, it became clear that, you know, the story of the Cairo Geniza. Right. Um, our story, which uh, we began to think of as a Jewish Indiana Jones. Yes, Adina's uh, <laughs> in charge of the slide. People don't think often that there is a Jewish aspect to the Indiana Jones stories. If you go online, there's actually a whole sort of para-literature about it. It may have something to do with the hat, I'm not sure. In any case, um, we began to think of our, the deep story within our story uh, as really a story of finds and near finds and rejected finds. Um, which all had at their heart the uh, question of value, hence sacred trash. So this boat is and is not the Cairo Geniza. Um, and for those of you who don't know, and we will shortly explain, um, in a very small nutshell, the Cairo Geniza is arguably the greatest discovery of Jewish manuscripts ever made. Important as it is, though, it's actually something that most people have never heard about. They have, of course, heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'd venture a guess that everyone in this room has heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and that is, you know, despite or maybe even because of the fact that those scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually um, seem to have come from a community that most scholars agree. They were basically a bunch of fanatics hiding in or running off into the desert. And the Cairo Geniza, meanwhile, um, really represents an embrace of the world as it really was for the vast majority of the Jews of the Middle Ages. And so it was actually with that Qumran comparison in mind that one of the greatest scholars of this material, or one of the great scholars, um, S.C. Goitain, uh, described the materials of the Geniza as being the Living Sea Scrolls. So enough by way of preamble. We're going to dive into um, our tale uh, pretty much as we had to when we were writing this book. Dean said we were not uh, experts in this field, scholars in this field by any means. Um, but one of the things that we found was uh, that the most basic questions, it was kind of the, the one advantage we had as non-specialists, 
um, was that we weren't afraid uh, or actually were forced constantly to ask the most basic questions. And they turned out often uh, to have anything but basic answers. And they, they are really what led us into this maze. So the obvious basic question is, what is this word, Geniza? What is a Geniza? We've become to think of it as, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the G word, the Jewish G spot, however you want to think of it. Um, what does Geniza mean? Geniza is a basically barely translatable Hebrew term, and I say that as a translator, believe in the power of translation, but barely translatable Hebrew term um, that carries with it, let's say, an ultimate statement about the worth of words and their place in Jewish life. Uh, it derives from the Persian ganj or kanj, which means treasure. Uh, the word as such in that form, Geniza, doesn't appear in the Bible, although in two books written under Persian rule, the book of Esther, the book of Ezra, we do hear about Ginze HaMelech or Ginze Malka, it sounds the same as Geniza, Ginze, the plural form, which mean either uh, the royal treasury or the king's treasury or the royal archives. Um, and that's it, pretty much. The book shows up in the book of Chronicles also. By the time we get to the rabbinic period in the Talmud, the word starts to show up uh, with greater frequency, uh, but also with uh, greater strangeness. Um, in the Talmud, the word geniza always implies a kind of concealment, um, usually a, something that has to do with burial or a storing away. Um, so that, for example, we hear about uh, the light of creation, the light the first light that was created with the creation of the world as being ganus or stored away for the souls of the righteous in the world to come. Um, anything, basically, basically, um, in the Talmud we hear frequent ref references to texts, religious texts, that have somehow become unfit for use. Usually they, because they're worn out or maybe because they're defective. Um, but when they're worn out, they have to be taken out of circulation because defective text could lead people astray to make mistakes. And so these two required geniza, that's always the phrase, and which means that they would be put away, usually buried or put in some sort of clay pot or something um, like that. Um, inherent in this notion, in this practice really, was the quite arresting and actually uh, certainly for writers, um, but not only for writers, a very beautiful notion that uh, words like people uh, have a soul and that these things must be protected uh, after a kind of death. Um, curiously in the Talmud, not just worn out things required Geniza, however, um, we find that certain heretical books the rabbis say, also have to be put in Geniza, or put in Geniza, they require Geniza. So for example, they're a minority opinion, but there are some rabbis who said that the biblical book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes both required Geniza. Why? Because each book on its own contained internal contradictions, which of course would be confusing for people and also lead them astray. And so these two um, required Geniza. If we want to summarize sort of the whole phenomenon during this period, we could say, as one scholar has, um, that in general, as the uh, word moved from uh, meaning or connoting a process to eventually connoting, denoting the place where these things were put, uh, it came to cover all circumstances, including and especially, uh, it served twofold purpose, let's say, 
it protected good things from harm and bad things from harming. Um, the practice continued in, was continued all through the early Middle Ages, from late antiquity uh, through the Middle Ages into the 20th century. This we see is an Algerian Jewish community in the 20th century. They've taken all their texts out of Agoniza, and then Dina will talk to you more about that in a second, and they're, they're about, they're being buried now, and it's basically a funeral, but for texts. And then it continues now into the 21st century. This is a snapshot we took at the National Library in Jerusalem not long ago. Uh, it says on the bag in Hebrew, Geniza lolizrok, uh, Geniza, uh, do not discard. And for those of you who speak Hebrew, you'll notice advanced paleographic analysis tells you that it was written probably by a new immigrant because there's a spelling mistake in the word throw. So, <laughs> so, um, so much for a Geniza or the practice of Geniza. Um, what we are really going to be talking about today is the Geniza, which is to say the Cairo Geniza, which comes from this place. Um, this is what is now known as the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Fustat, which is the oldest part of Cairo. It's to the south of Cairo proper. It's now actually just a continuation of Cairo proper. Um, today it's a slum. Um, in its heyday, in the Middle Ages, it was a teeming metropolis and an incredibly um, prosperous place. It was actually home to the most prosperous Jewish community in the entire world. Um, now here it's also worth stopping to notice, you see it's an Eastern synagogue, it looks, you know, there are beautiful painted ceilings and um, you can't see the walls, everything's kind of heavily ornamented. Um, you have to put aside your sort of American ideas about Jewish history um, and the notion that it was a kind of straight shot from the Bible to the shtetl to the Lower East Side. This is something else entirely. This is a very Eastern world. Um, at this point, um, some 90, during the High Middle Ages, and when we're talking about the classical period of the Geniza, it's the late 10th through the mid 13th century, 90% of the world's Jews lived in the East. Um, and eventually under the Some rule of Islam. Some would say even, that's a conservative figure. Right. Some would say 96%. Right, so these were Arabic-speaking Jews. They were living in this highly cosmopolitan society. Their neighbor, they did not live in a ghetto. They were part of a, um, a world that included Muslims and Christians and others as well. It wasn't always perfect. They didn't always get along, but they shared businesses um, across um, denominational lines and religious lines. Um, they ha often lived in the same building as others. It was not, they, and they were religious Jews. I mean, I should say that. This was not an assimilated society. Um, now, so this synagogue um, belonged to the Palestinian Jewish community of Fustat, and there were three synagogues. This particular community, they were descended from Jews who'd come from Palestine or the land of Israel, and um, it served as a kind of, for that particular community, and I should say, actually, I jumped, I was talking about Jewish history and wasn't, I didn't tell you enough about Fustat itself. Fustat was the place to be. It, it was a, a place that was full of all kinds of immigrants from everywhere, people seeking their fortune and fleeing persecution. Um, it was a very mixed and vibrant city. It was also a pivotal point on the trade routes. Because of its location on the Nile, which led out to the Mediterranean, there were all kinds of traders bringing wares in and taking them out and traveling as all around, of course, the Middle East and North Africa, but as far as India. Um, so this really was a hub. And for this Palestinian Jewish community, this was the hub of the hub, the synagogue, and of course it was a place of worship, but it was also a place for all kinds of other things at the same time. It was a kind of community center, um, and this was actually the main building of a whole complex of buildings um, on that site. It's still standing today. You can go. It's actually been renovated very beautifully by a Canadian team. Um, in the 1980s, they fixed it up. Um, and 
So what does it mean that it was a community center? This is where the soup kitchen was, so that they passed out bread to the poor, the Jewish poor, twice a week. It's where the rabbinical court um, held session. It's where the students came to study. There was an academy here. And so in the course of an ordinary week, every Jew who was a part of this community would have passed through. And as they passed through, they would have brought with them and, um, and created all kinds of papers. And so it was um, that, let's see if I can get this little red dot to work up here in the women's section in the gallery. Um, those papers would ascend, and they would eventually make their way into this hole in the wall. And this is the Cairo Geniza. Which you have to reach uh, by climbing a ladder, which we did not long ago. Uh, there's nothing in there now. But in any case, um, for reasons, and this goes back to one of those basic questions, for reasons that remain mysterious, Right. Scholars have been working on this material for the better part of 100 years, more than 100 years now. Um, we don't completely know why, but I said in the Talmud that religious texts required Geniza. In this particular community, for some reason, that requirement was extended much more widely. So it wasn't just religious texts that were put in there, but virtually every kind of text that this community had. It seems, the scholarly opinion varies, but it seems the most persuasive explanation to us, or maybe to me, Adina may have an argument about this, um, it seems that the principle of sorting, let's say, of classification was that anything that had a Hebrew, that was written in Hebrew letters. So it was the letter itself that was uh, sacred rather than the content per se. And um, so that would mean that anything written, obviously, in the Hebrew language would go up there but also anything written in Aramaic, which uses the Hebrew character, and anything written, especially anything written in Judeo-Arabic. Judeo-Arabic, for those of you who don't know, is, the, uh, is basically a middle register of Arabic that was spoken by Jews all through the Mediterranean world, the Middle East in that period. Um, it's Arabic proper with some Hebrew mixed in. But when it is written, it's written in Hebrew characters in the same way that Yiddish is a kind of German written uh, in uh, Hebrew characters. There's also Yiddish in the Geniza in Old Cairo from the 10th, 11th century. You have, uh, or a little, a little bit later, the earliest extant Yiddish documents come from Cairo. So we're found in this mix. Um, you also find Judeo-Persian and Judeo-Greek, you name it. It was all put, um, it was all put up there. Uh, and it's as if the community as a whole sort of emptied its collective pockets into this place or its collective desk and file cabinets periodically. And they all, it all pat went up, as Adina said, into, through that hole into what amounts to a kind of glorified walk-in closet. It's really, I, don't, I think Imelda Marcos, for those of you who remember her, probably had a bigger shoe closet uh, than this thing. It was six, it's six by eight by 18, really not all that big. And um, another strange thing in this whole story is we said that Geniza is associated with the notion of burial usually. And today, whenever Geniza is practiced anywhere in the world, people always bury it. We saw the Algerian uh, book funeral, text funeral. This community didn't bury their texts, or they buried only a small part of them. Again, we don't quite know why. There's been ethnographic research done in the last 25 years that shows it may be a North African custom not to bury it, just to leave things uh, in it. The Dead Sea Scrolls, some people consider a kind of Geniza, put in, a, in pots in the, in the desert. Um, in any case, this stuff was not buried. It was left in this Geniza because Egypt in this, in this part of Egypt in particular has a very, very dry climate and because of legends of a poisonous snake 
that guarded the entrance to the Geniza and a curse which hovered over, see now we're back to the Indiana Jones, which hovered over the Geniza and threatened to attach itself to anybody who disturbed the contents of the Geniza. Pretty much that the contents of this Geniza lay undisturbed as it accumulated for the better part of a thousand years. Stuff just kept, kept uh, getting put in there. People would take a little bit out here, a little bit out there, bury some, sell some, but more than uh, often, or more often than not, it all stayed there. And um, how all this was taken out of that dark closet and brought to light, which is to say, out of Egypt is where our story begins. So it actually begins with two unlikely Jewish heroines, these two women who were not Jewish at all. They were devout uh, Presbyterians um, and identical twin Scottish sisters, Agnes Lewis and Margaret Gibson. And I have to admit that I can't remember which one is which. Um, and this is a totally misleading picture. These are actually you portraits. Say some people in Cambridge now talk, us, talk about us as the, yeah, the Kohlhoffs, the new Giblus. They the, were uh, called the Giblus because their names were Margaret Gibson and Agnes Lewis. And so when they were fused, they became like us, the Kohlhoffs, the Giblus. Um, and, but this is quite a misleading um, set of portraits because, in fact, you know, here you see them in full academic regalia. As you probably know, women were not admitted to Cambridge, or they were admitted, but they weren't granted degrees until 1948. Um, and these women were what we would call today independent scholars. Um, they were almost entirely. Also like the Kohlhoffs. Also like the Kohlhoffs, yes. Um, they were almost entirely self taught. They were actually raised by a very forward thinking lawyer father just outside of Glasgow. Their mother died when they were young. And he basically raised them um, as if they were sons. He taught them to argue and to ride horses. And he also instilled in them early on a deep love of languages or language acquisition. And he basically had a pact with the girls. And he said, if you learn a language and you master it, then you can have a trip to the place where that language is spoken. And this was a very clever technique, because by the time they were teenagers, they had mastered um, four or five European languages and had traveled extensively. Um, and their father died when they were in their 20s and left them quite a sizable inheritance. They each married, very briefly, um, to a clergyman, two separate clergymen. But, um, and, and, <laughs> and then also curiously. And curiously, well, actually, they did end up, are you talking about their sleeping their, arrangements? Well, their husbands. Oh, their husbands. What died. happened to the husbands? The husbands both died. It's Within very strange. A year. Within a year. And then the twins, <laughs> the twins, and there's no real hanky-panky suspected. I mean, who knows? But, um, but the twins basically <coughs> then, in a sense, married each other. They even, it seems, shared a bed. Um, and they basically devoted themselves to a life of travel and study together. And they continued with this language acquisition scheme that their father had um, taught them early on. But now they turned their attentions to the languages of the East. And these were, as I said, very devout women so that they learned Hebrew and Arabic and Syriac and Persian. And they also traveled all over the East, and especially to Sinai, which was one of their favorite destinations. Um, here, I think it's Margaret on the camel. Um, and here we have Agnes in the lunch tent. And I should say these are photographs that they themselves took of each other. Um, they were also sort of photographic pioneers. They learned how to use the camera. They developed the film themselves. They actually learned how to use a camera the week before they left for this for trip. For one of these trips. Um, and I mean, it's interesting to note, we'll, we'll be taught, we've mentioned and we'll keep mentioning this notion of value and, and devaluation and revaluation. And often when this story is told, they're sort of referred to as these lady travelers, almost always that's how they're called. It's ridiculous. They were actually exceptionally brave and learned women. Um, and they have an important role to play in this story. Um, back in Cambridge where they lived, they were, as I said, Presbyterians. They were not Anglicans. They were obviously women. And so their friends were a whole host of Quakers and freethinkers and Jews. And so it was that um, one particular May day in 1896, Agnes 
just happened to be out stretching her legs. They had actually just returned from a trip to the east, um, where, as Margaret um, explained it, um, Agnes had suffered a serious uh, rheumatic illness when they lost their tents on the plains of Ela or something like that. Um, but so she needed to go stretch her legs. And when she went out to stretch her legs, she happened to have bumped into this man, Solomon Schechter. Um, yes, Solomon Schechter. <laughs> Even more of an oddball in the Danish context of Cambridge than Agnes and Margaret, the very Jewish, very blustery Schechter must have cut a remarkable figure as he strode down King's Parade. With his bushy red-tinted beard, unruly hair, and tendency to gesticulate broadly as he spoke, Schechter had been known to set off in the broiling heat of midsummer, wrapped up in a winter coat and several yards of scarf. An acquaintance remembered first meeting Schechter with his dirty black coat, smudged all over with snuff and ashes from his cigar, hands unwashed, nails as black as ink, but rather nice fingers, beard and hair unkempt, a ruddy complexion. One ear was stuffed full of wool hanging out, and he was always very abrupt in his speech. Another recalled that his socks never matched. His resemblance to a bag lady apart, there was, as another colleague put it, the magic of prophecy about the man. He also had, his wife would write years later, a genius for friendship. He loved people, and they loved him. Since his 1890 arrival in Cambridge, where he was first, where he was first given the odd title lecturer in Talmudic and later appointed reader in rabbinics, Schechter had gained the deep respect and affection of a range of the town's leading intellectuals, including the radical Scottish Bible scholar and Arabist William Robertson Smith, who arranged for Schechter to join Christ's College, where, he, where special kosher meals were prepared whenever he came to dine, the Africa explorer Mary Kingsley, with whom he much enjoyed swearing, and the pioneering anthropologist and reclusive author of The Golden Bough, James Fraser. Perhaps best friend at the time. The two took walks together several days a week, discussing as they rambled, quote, all things human and divine. Fraser himself praised Schechter as great in his intellect and learning, greater even in the warmth of his affections and in his enthusiasm for every high and noble cause. By turns fierce, warm, brusque, tender, biting in his wit and thundering in his manner, quote, the king in any society in which he found himself, Schechter was often described in peculiarly zoological terms. Now he was a demanding lamb, now an eagle or a bear. I can see him in my mind's eye at the height of a debate, wrote yet another friend, rising from his chair, perhaps kicking it down and pacing the room like a wounded lion roaring retorts. Lamb or jungle cat, he inspired awe and devotion in most people. The one imagines that the formidable Agnes Lewis would not even have blinked as she sailed, however arthritically, toward Schechter that day in the street. Now. What Agnes had to tell Schechter was that she and Margaret had just returned from this trip, and she's a little bit cagey about where exactly they were. They were in Egypt, in Palestine. Um, they came back with a trunk full of manuscripts, and this was typical of the twins. Um, that's what they did on vacation. Um, and, um, and as they always did, they had set about trying to figure out what they had on their hands. And this time it was Margaret's turn to do the, the sorting. And so she had managed to figure out what everything was except for two pieces. And so Agnes said to Schechter, who I should say was Romanian born and had a kind of um, old world Jewish education as a boy, but had gone on to study in Vienna and Berlin and had had a serious training. Um, he had a, I mean, rabbinical ordination doesn't begin to cover it. He was deeply learned when it comes to the Palestinian Talmud and all sorts of other um, classical uh, Jewish subjects, but he also had a secular education. Um, he attended university, and he was a voracious intellect. He read everything. It's said that he learned English by reading George Eliot. I don't know if I believe that. Um, 
But in any event, Agnes thought that if anyone could identify these scraps, it would be Solomon Schechter. So she said, when you have a chance, perhaps you could come by. Now, Schechter being Schechter, he wasted no time. And by the time Agnes got home, about an hour later, he was already there at the dining room table with Margaret, um, holding in his hands this particular item, which Agnes would later describe as a dirty scrap of paper. Margaret said it looked as though a grocer had used it for something greasy. Um, but as he held it, Margaret later said, I noticed that his eyes were glittering. So another one of these basic questions, why were his eyes glittering? Uh, the obvious answer, and so when you know a little bit of the story, you see you know, there is an obvious answer, which is that he felt that he had, he had a hunch that he had in his hands something sensational, which is to say a page of the long-lost Hebrew book of Ecclesiasticus, or as it's known in Hebrew, the book of Ben Sirah, which is to say part of the Apocrypha, although in the Catholic Bible it's actually part of the scriptural canon. Although not and, part of the Presbyterian canon, which is why the sisters couldn't uh, recognize it. Right, <laughs> yeah. And um, the, just very in a nutshell, the book of Ben Sirah is, uh, the sensation was that for the last thousand years, basically since the 10th century, the Hebrew original, if there ever was a Hebrew original, which is back to the Indiana Jones part, had been lost. All that survived were, or as far as the ancient versions, were um, translations into Greek and into Syriac. And the Greek translation was especially valuable because it was done, it was, the book was translated by the author, Ben Sira, by his grandson. And in the introduction to the work, the grandson explains, I translated this in such and such during the reign of so-and-so, and we know when so-and-so reigned. So we have a ex pretty close approximation for the date of the translation. And scholars can then extrapolate back two generations, and we have a date for this quasi-para-biblical book. What did Hebrew sound like at exactly this period? That's a very valuable thing. We'll see why in a second. Um, so, it's basically this long lost piece of scripture. That's the sensation. Schechter himself was a man who was not at all um, averse uh, to sensation. Um, he wanted to make a name for himself in a major way as a scholar, uh, not merely in a kind of egotistical sense, but he had an agenda that he was going to bring with, uh, with his fame. Um, the book in English, the book of Ecclesiasticus, which means, by the way, the, the book of the church, because it was so uh, beloved by the church fathers, uh, partly for its moralistic uh, thrust, uh, and as I say, was part of the Catholic Bible proper. Um, it's best known in English because another unlikely sort of conjunction because of uh, James A.G., uh, who, with Walker Evans, wrote a book called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, one of the most powerful, beautiful lines, or many beautiful lines in Ben Sirah, but that comes from uh, one of the closing sections. And uh, so the King James Bible, for example, which gives us the phrase, let us now praise famous men, um, is based on the Greek original, not on the Hebrew original. So, but the source of um, that glitter in Schechter's eye really goes deeper, and it leads us to, uh, not so much to the Geniza initially, but to a long-standing fascination that he had with the book of Ben Sirah. Now, why is it important that he was so uh, interested in the book of Ben Sirah? because it helps us establish one important fact at this stage, which is that Schechter did not care about the Geniza at all. He knew about the Geniza all this time. We'll tell you a little bit more about that. But basically, until the book of that one page of the book of Ben Sirah was in his hands, he could care less about the Geniza, 
per se as a place of interest. Okay, so why was he interested in Ben Sira then? Two basic reasons. I'm gonna paint with a very broad brush. So we go through in the book, we go into much more detail. But one, because this was a book that came right after the close of the biblical canon, and before, let's say, the start or on the cusp of the rabbinic period, it was this kind of missing link. It was right up there you know, on the cusp of these two periods. For him, if he could establish this as a uh, legitimate, authentic, original Hebrew work, he would have evidence, part of a larger argument he was making, for the continuity of Jewish vitality through the ages. Right? That Jewish, the development of Jewish thought, Jewish religious thought, Jewish cultural thought was really unbroken and continually transformed itself in vital ways through the ages into rabbinic Judaism, into the Middle Ages, into the 17th century. And this is something that in many of his essays that he was writing during this period, he was really mapping out uh, for English Jewry, uh, for European Jewry. Um, but a related and maybe more negative, but uh, every bit as um, important uh, facet of this was, and also had to do with this dating, was if he could establish that vitality and if he could prove that this piece of paper was in fact from 180 BCE, he could use it, and this is complicated, but he would be able to discredit a whole line of Christian biblical thought that he saw as basically extremely hostile to Judaism. Basically, he had been in a kind of ongoing argument with a school of biblical criticism, the most famous school of biblical criticism of the day, known as higher criticism, right? Uh, the German higher critics, where he went to college also, they were in their heyday. Julius Wellhausen, who is the sort of leader of this school, basically Schechter's contemporary. Uh, Schechter's a famous essay where he calls uh, higher criticism, higher anti-Semitism. Right? And uh, why was he so upset about this particular uh, strain of thought, or at least the way someone like Wellhausen presented it? Because that um, higher criticism basically saw um, the history of Judaism as a history of a, a, a tragic falling off. It begins with the sublimity of revelation and prophecy, and then it descends into the desiccation of the priestly rites and institutions, and eventually onto the suffocating wooliness and even fraudulence of rab rabbinism. Right? And this is basically, it's familiar to everybody, as a classic anti-Semitic trope. I mean, all anti-Semites have internalized that at some level. Um, the higher critic Schechter believed and this is his phrase, we're trying to, quote, argue out of existence the humble activities of whole centuries of men enlisted in the service of religious study. A vivisection of Jewish history, right? A cutting into the live flesh, the monkey's head, as it were, of Jewish history is the way he saw this, uh, these higher what these higher critics were doing. And he added that he wanted to recover our Bible, apocrypha included, from the Christian. I should say that when we showed this chapter to a Christian theologian friend, he wrote back and he said, well, things have improved a lot since then. <laughs> so, uh, basically, if Shakespeare could get hold of more than this one piece of paper, right? Where there was one piece of paper, maybe there was a lot more, maybe there was a whole book. If he could get hold of all that, he would have that missing vital link between the greatness of the Bible and the development of the vision of rabbinic Judaism. And this, in turn, would go a long way towards debunking these higher critics. There was also, on a kind of a minor uh, level, there was an institutional rivalry, rivalry at work here. Um, as always, Cambridge versus Oxford. Um, <laughs> the minute the announcement that uh, Dina mentioned, I think, did you I mention have this? I haven't mentioned, mentioned it. This I will mention the it. twins, uh, she's going to say that the <laughs> twins, uh, 
as soon as this stuff was found, made an announcement. The very day that Schechter made this discovery, Agnes rushed to write two articles, one for the Athenaeum and the other for the Academy. These were major journals of the day, announcing that Dr. Schechter of Cambridge has just identified da 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 da, da in large part to mark their scholarship. Yeah, not term. revealing where it came no. from, but marking their spot that they got there yeah. first. Well, that set off the people at the Bodleian, at Oxford, who to look through their collection, maybe they had some Ben Sira also, did. and lo and behold, they, they did. did. And then so the two institutions were racing each other, basically to find more um, Ben Sira. Anyway, um, so the excitement mounted. Uh, Schechter, after he saw that one piece of paper, ran off to the library, the same way he ran to the, uh, to the twins' house to see this. And uh, his wife, um, when, he got home. when he got home, his wife, Matilda, that's Matilda, Matilda Schechter, she has a very, very interesting unpublished memoir, a Jewish Theological Seminary, which of course we ransacked uh, <laughs> writing this book. And uh, she reports in this unpublished mem memoir, somewhat fancifully, that when he returned home from the library, um, having confirmed his hunch, uh, he, got, she, he was in a very excited mood and very pale, and his first words out of his mouth were, wife, so long as the Bible lives, my name shall not die. <laughs> so that, though, that really just tells us why it is that he was fascinated um, by Ben Sira and why it was that he wanted more. It doesn't really tell us how he connected the dots to the Geniza. And we actually don't have time to go into all of this. Um, suffice it to say that we had to do some dot connecting, too, um, as we tried to figure it out. It's not a straight shot. But he figured out, and he had various, one of the wonderful stories, he actually had a good friend who had already been inside the Geniza and who had actually taken manuscripts out, who had showed him some of these manuscripts um, several months earlier, before all this happened. And it seems that Schechter sniffed the manuscripts and got a scent, and that maybe when he smelled the Giblu's fragment, he also knew that it came from the same place. That's, that's one theory. Which um, also lends a kind of uh, physical credence to the great um, historian Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, for those of you who know him. Uh, late in his life, wrote about how the historian uh, must have de a highly developed olfactory sense. Right, exactly. Um, and but what we do know is, as Peter said, Schechter had known very well about the Geniza, and he hadn't cared until now. And there are, in fact, some incredible documents at the Cambridge University Library that we un we were looking at um, that basically, in not in Schechter's own hand, but in the librarian's own hand, make, makes it very clear that items were offered for sale to the library. Very specifically from the Cairo Geniza or a Geniza in old Cairo or an Egyptian Geniza, and Schechter said that they were worthless. He was not interested. They were without value. Um, so he, could, he just didn't care. But now, now he cared deeply. He caught this Ben Sira <coughs> bug, and he wanted to go find more. So it wasn't such a simple thing. He didn't have a lot of money, and so he obviously couldn't fund his own trip. Um, he also, though, couldn't turn for help um, to <coughs> Cambridge University itself because he knew that as soon as he did that, it would have to be publicized. And then, again, you'd have the people at Oxford also racing to get to the same place. And it would also take forever. And it would also probably take forever. Um, so what he did instead was to enlist the help of this man, Charles Taylor, um, also quite a formidable figure in all ways. He was um, a mathematician, a serious Christian Hebraist. He'd actually already translated um, a very um, a wonderful translation of Pirkei Avot, the sayings of the fathers what he called it. Um, and he was also, and he was the master of St. John's College. He was a very wealthy man. And he was also Solomon Schechter's student. He was actually 10 years Schechter's senior. But um, Schechter had a weekly sort of tutorial for certain faculty members in which they study rabbinic texts together. And Taylor deeply admired Schechter. And he considered it a kind of honor to fund this trip, this adventure. And it's clear there were a few other people who were in on the secret that they all considered it this great romantic adventure that he was going to go off in search of the long lost book of Ecclesiasticus. Um, so 
he gave him 200 pounds and Matilda packed uh, Schechter's good black suit and off he went. And the terms that are used to describe this, uh, Matilda, not just in the memoir, also in various letters, she's got quite the flair and she describes this secret mission that he's on. Um, and it's all very kind of hush-hush. Um, but what's interesting to note is that when he got there, almost as soon as he got there and climbed up that rickety ladder and peered into this hole, um, he immediately understood that something else now was at stake. It was Ben Sira that had got him there, but it was his imagination um, that led him further. And he pretty much took one look, it seems he understood this very early on, and realized that the detritus of an entire civilization was basically staring him in the face. And um, this is one of those moments, and there's, it's a kind of recurring moment, different moments with the same, um, I don't know, um, the same idea throughout the book is that this notion of these scholars and and the incredible sort of visionary imagination that goes into um, making such a find and continuing to make such a find. It didn't just get found once, um, as you'll see. So this is what he described when he looked inside the room. And I should say this is from an essay that he wrote right after, the year after. It still remains one of the very best descriptions of, of what he saw in that room. It's called A Horde of Hebrew Manuscripts. Yeah, we, I'll read just a, a couple of sentences. But keep in mind, this is somebody who's writing. This is English is maybe his fourth, fifth, sixth language. Yeah. He's really quite a powerful writer in English. One can hardly realize the confusion in the genuine old Geniza until one has seen it. It is a battlefield of books, and the literary production of many centuries had their share in the battle, and their disjecta member are now strewn over its area. Some of the belligerents have perished outright and are literally ground to dust in the terrible struggle for space, whilst others, as if overtaken by a general crush, are squeezed into big unshapely lumps, which even with the aid of chemical appliances can no longer be separated without serious damage to their constituents. And he goes on to describe this incredible hodgepodge of things. You have to realize this is not a kind of neatly tended archive with our, you know, alphabetized, it's not an archive at all. It's a mess. It basically looks like a garbage heap. So that there's um, a work about angels attached to the back of a rational tract on top of an IOU, which is smashed against the love letter, and so on and on. And so, as I said, he realized right away that he really needed to do everything he could to get what he could of this stash. Um, in his letters to Matilda, and he wrote her almost daily, she was back in Cambridge, he was in Cairo, they're an incredible, um, it's just an incredible document of his time there. He describes having to charm the rabbi, this was the chief rabbi of Cairo in his turban, um, charm him, and for instance, um, it turned out that the rabbi was a stamp collector. So at a certain point, Schechter writes Matilda, please send me stamps, send me stamps, <laughs> quickly. Um, and he also, he had to convince this man, and he also had to convince the aristocratic Jewish families of Cairo. Um, this is actually the house, the villa of one of them, the Katawi family, um, that, uh, and this, he ate many meals here while he was visiting, um, that, that they should let him have this, this collection. Now, you know, we now know how valuable it was. To them, it was, again, basically, trash. Um, they were obviously, as you can see, quite well off. They lived in a much more um, luxurious part of Cairo. Um, Fustat had now really become a slum, and many of them didn't even have family ties that went back as far as these documents. They basically didn't really care if he wanted to take this dirty stuff away. That's fine. They were actually much more interested in establishing ties to an illustrious European institution like Cambridge. So they basically gave him carte blanche to take whatever he wanted. And as he said, I wanted it all. <laughs> um, and so he spent a great deal of time. He was there for a full month working, it seems, almost full time, um, rummaging through these texts. And again, his letters to Matilda are just priceless. He's writing in this mishmash of German, German and English. Um, and he'll say things like, and it, it's a very dirty, I mean, he's covered in dust and there are bugs. It actually really impair, seriously impaired his health. It seems to have taken several years off of his life. He came back 
an old man. But he says to her at one point, I must take a bath immediately. I am covered in Geniza schmutz. <laughs> Classic. And he also, he'll say things after this, you know, reckoning with the mosquitoes, ich full of spots bin, and things like that. Um, so anyway, in the course of this month, he managed to pack up eight very large wooden crates full of what we now know to be 190,000 manuscripts. Um, shipped them back to, to Cambridge, um, where he almost immediately set to work in this room, which became known as the Cairo Room. It's the picture that's on the front of our book. It's a famous picture. It seems to have been staged. He's alone in the picture. He was rarely alone in the room. Apparently, the manuscript stank to high heaven, and so they kind of gave him this place to work, but he, was, he had a lot of people working with him. He was wearing most of the time a kind of uh, snout bag, nose bag thing um, to protect him from the scent. There are these boxes here you can see um, into which they were sorting the different categories of materials. This became a kind of Cambridge sensation. Everybody wanted to go see the uh, Romanian wonder rabbi at work. So, so. in the time remaining, we're going to give you two quick examples of um, finds and near finds and rejected finds, uh, examples in, that show you how these scholars recreated really uh, an entire world uh, was something that somebody else had completely overlooked um, or dismissed. Um, one day in that same year, 1897, right around the time just after Schechter had gotten down to work, this woman, um, Persis Burkett, looks like she just belongs on a Victorian cameo, uh, attended one of Matilda Schechter's, also quite a contrast, the two of them, Schechter's wife and uh, Persis. Um, she attended one of Matilda's uh, at-homes or teas, a kind of open house. And um, Matilda was going on and on to her about the wonders of her husband's work with all this Geniza stuff in the Cairo room down at the old college and library and how she really should go see, well, see him in action. And so she went home and she told her husband, Francis, that's not Francis, Francis is in the back with a smaller hat. <laughs> that's Francis. <laughs> uh, a smaller hat and much less facial hair. Um, <laughs> This is the only extant picture of Francis Burkert that we've, uh, that we've, we've been able, we've to, able find. to find. Yeah. Uh, this is actually taken in St. Catherine's Saint Saint. Mo uh, Monastery in Sinai when he was with the twins, the Giblus, on an earlier trip where they were working with the manuscripts they found in the, in the monastery there. Anyway, he was an up-and-coming scholar of ancient Greek uh, at uh, Cambridge. And um, so she went home and she told her husband, and said, you're the one who should go see what this guy's up to. It sounds amazing. You should really go. So he goes into the Cambridge room one day. We actually went, when we were in Cambridge, looking for this room. It doesn't exist as the building exists, but the room's no longer. They've subdivided it. Um, anyway, he goes in, and Schechter sort of tells me he can look around. He looks around. He explains. He's not really impressed. It's not really his kind of thing. Um, and as he's about to leave, Schechter gestures to one of the boxes over in the corner. And he says, oh, maybe you should have a look at that. That's got a few Greek things in it. So he goes over to the box. He stares and he picks up the first thing. It's actually a piece of parchment, and he stares at it. It's a, it's a piece of paper that looks a bit like this, not exactly this, but that within that box, actually. Um, and you can see where Dina will show you with the bouncing red ball. Those are the Greek letters, right? The main thing on this page is Hebrew, obviously. Right? Hebrew is like this kind of marching band going across the football field here. Underneath, you know, from this last week's game, here. <laughs> and, you know, the, the women's soccer game or something is uh, these Greek letters upside down, kind of bobbing there underneath, as if underneath the surface of a pond. And what this is is a palimpsest, which is to say parchment was valuable. They wouldn't just throw parchment out. When a text was sort of laid to the side and no longer being read a lot, they would take up the parchment, take a pumice stone, right, made from volcanic stone, rub out the ink of the older text, 
clear kind of blank slate. It's like a medieval etch-a-sketch pad, the way I think of it. And uh, they would write something new over it that was you know, in, in greater demand. Um, but as Margaret writes, you know, uh, what did she say? You know, paper has a memory. Right? All things, everything has a memory, including paper. Paper doesn't forget. It's in there. This it's is in there parchment. Somehow. And they could also use different yeah. chemicals to help bring out what was there. Anyway, there was enough there for Burkert to look at it and see what it was. And he could make it out. He said, I think this is very important. Schechter now was a little skeptical. And he said, well, I'm not sure, but why don't you just take the whole box home? And if, in fact, I mean, was it was a small box. It wasn't one of those big crates. Uh, if, in fact, there's anything important there, you know, work on it, edit it, and maybe you can prepare it for publication, I'd be grateful. OK. So he goes home. He comes back the next day. Confirm, he's confirmed his hunch. Yes, it is very important. What was it? The Greek was a uh, translation of the Bible into Greek by Achilla, who's one of the major Greek translators of scripture from the second century uh, CE. He would translate for Greek-speaking Jewish communities. And um, there weren't that many copies of this around. And so very soon, he did what Schechter asked. He set to work. What happened to that book? Oh, I've got it right here. No. Wait, wait. Um, he set to work. And within a year, he had published this book. It says, Fragments of the Book of Kings, According to the Translation of Achilla. You can here, see actually. over here, that's what it looks like. And there is the Yale University Library's copy, 1899. This is the published. copy. We took it out. It was here in 1899. It was published in 1897. And you won't be able to see really very well, but it has amazing facsimiles for 1897, as good as anything you could produce today. It's a little hard to see. I don't want to ruin the book. But the incredibly vivid facsimiles of these um, palimpsests, so you can read all the Greek. Anyway, he annotates everything all about Achilles, translation of the Book of Kings and from Psalms and so and so, and you name it. And Charles Taylor, who we just saw, the one who sponsored the secret mission to Egypt, he writes the preface with the preface by Charles Taylor. And in the preface, at the very last sentence of his preface, he notes that the Hebrew upper writing is also not without interest. Enter, at this point, a scholar named Israel Davidson. Take that, Adina. And um, Davidson, somebody who has an incredible life story, which we go into great detail in the book, again, can't tell. But it was his, story, his life itself was a kind of palimpsest. Just one quick example, 12 siblings of his died before he was born. So he was kind of born onto that etch-a-sketch pad of the family's history. Um, they didn't want to give him a name, because they thought it was bad luck at that point. And so they were said they would real, you know, give him a name when he came of age. Uh, it worked. He lived, but his parents died while he was young. <laughs> he became an orphan. Anyway, Before long, they could long tell story. Them his yeah. name, long, long story. And while he, in an effort, so he was raised in Lithuania. Uh, he escapes conscription to the Tsar's army uh, round, just around the time actually that Schechter is discovering all this stuff. Yeah. Um, back in Cambridge. No, uh, a little earlier. earlier. A little, little earlier. Yeah. But anyway, he goes to he flees. He goes to New York. He arrives in New York, totally penniless. He's fleeced on board on the ship. Uh, he doesn't have um, any English. He actually doesn't have a name. He comes up with the name Israel Davidson while he's on the boat. Complicated story how he comes to that. I won't tell you that here. Um, and so there he is. He's working odd jobs in New York in the Jewish community. And he realizes he needs to learn English. So he enrolls himself in school, but not in English as a foreign language school. And he's 18 years old. He enrolls himself in, this is the scholar to be, in elementary school. Sixth grade, you have the 18-year-old Israel Davidson sitting there in sixth grade. He decides that that's not thorough enough. He has himself demoted to first grade, so he can, if he's going to learn, he's going to learn. And so he starts at the very bottom. He works his way up quite quickly, of course. Um, but within 12 years or something like that, he has a PhD from Columbia University in just rabbinic ordination. His first job out of college is at Sing Sing. 
He's the chaplain, he's the rabbi at Sing Sing for a couple of years. And then in 1905, um, Solomon Schechter, who we've been talking about, has just uh, decamped from Cambridge to assume the presidency of the Jewish Theological Seminary in America. He thinks that the future of Judaism is in America. It's a complicated thing about that. And uh, he hires Israel Davidson um, to teach medieval literature um, at Jewish Theological Seminary. Very poorly paid position, but he's very glad for it. Um, in, five years later, 1910 now, Davidson is looking through scraps. When Schechter came from England to New York, he brought with him on loan some of the Geniza holdings. Very few, but some of them. And um, so Davidson's looking through, and one day he comes across a four by five inch scrap on a piece of paper, right? Four by five, like half a book, a little torn piece of paper. And it seems to be totally innocuous. It's instructions for a prayer manual, right? Big deal. But the prayer manual mentions somebody named Yanai. Who is Yanai? Curious. How many people in the room know who Yanai is? I mean, I know some of you know. <laughs> okay, so it's like two or three. Um, Yanai is a legendary, and the only reason that, that he would know, Yanai is a legendary figure in the history of Hebrew literature, a legendary poet or, you know, from the middle, early Middle Ages, not sure when. Um, his claim to fame basically was that one of his poems was extant and is in the Haggadah, in the book that's read on Passover. So those of you who go to a Passover Seder in two weeks, you will read, and you've read for years, one of Yanai's poems by Yechiba Chatzia Laila, right, and at midnight, um, and it, it came to pass at midnight. And um, then there's also a story uh, that like, gives him a certain claim to fame, uh, where at Yale, so uh, the story involves, to put it this way, a kind of anxiety of lack of influence. Um, he, uh, he was famous, there's a story in the later Middle Ages by, that says, according to which, he was jealous of his best student who was, became extremely famous, much more famous than he was. And so he put a scorpion in his sandal and killed him. <laughs> so that was basically the only two things known about this guy, was that A, he was once very, very famous, B, he has this poem, and C, he was eclipsed uh, by his student. So here was at least a, a, a tag, a thread, something that mentioned this guy's name. It was an instruction for a prayer book. said, And then the following poems, hymns by Yanai would be recited. And what was interesting was they just mentioned the first words of a bunch of poems. So what did that tell you, Davidson? It told him that everybody at that point knew those poems by heart. You didn't have to say what they were, just the first words. You didn't have to have the poems there. They would know what to say. So that showed you at a certain point, 10th, 11th century, his work was still very, very much in um, circulation. So he published that little scrap in a journal called the Jewish Quarterly Review, which Schechter himself edited. And Nobody responded. So like publishing in a journal today. <laughs> Nothing happens. Uh, he published a lot of things in the journal for the next four or five years. In 1914, he took a trip, uh, uh, a steamer. Uh, he went back to Cambridge to look at the Geniza collection firsthand, hoping he would find more of this kind of stuff. He did find extremely interesting stuff that we also write about, all kinds of heretics, uh, but nothing about uh, Unai or any of this. And then he came back uh, to go to work at JTS. Time passes. And then one day, another one of these mysterious things, there's sort of institutional lore around it, but there's no paper trail whatsoever, and we really looked hard. Oh, there um, is, yeah, okay. So no, one, no, 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 we'll no, don't. One yeah, little we'll, piece, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the story is that one Saturday afternoon, one Shabbat, he was waiting for some students to come over for tea, and uh, passing the time, something told him that he should take that book off the shelf that we just showed you, the uh, Palimpsest book, this one over here, and we were just curious. So we went to his archive at JTS, Davidson's archive. Okay, no, it's going to be the other one first, no? Which one? Oh, no, you're right, no, yeah. 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 And 
this incredible little document, a short catalog of the Library of Israel Davidson. This is completed March 13, 1914, right? brought to date August. He made a handwritten catalog of his own private library, which was very, very large. And he had this book and another book of Palimpsest. All these years, he had these books on his shelf in his own home. But that particular Saturday, he opened the book, and then staring at his face, was, Dina will show you, follow the bouncing ball once again. Um, where is it? Uh, shy? can you read in the back? <laughs> can you see what those letters are? The first one on the right? Here? It's pretty hard Anybody? to read up Yud, Nun, Yud, Yud, which spells Yanai. It's an acrostic signature of this poet's name, right? So he had, that's one of the ways these poets worked is they would write acrostic signatures. Here was his name encoded into the spine of the poem. Right? And when we learned that at certain places in these poems, they would always do this. And so he then started to go back through all these pieces of paper that he had and this book. Yanai's name appears four times in this book, eight times in another book. Most of the work in this thing, these hymns were by Yanai. Right? You remember, um, and Schechter had also looked at this stuff before and made, they couldn't make heads or tails of it. He said some kind of hymn, who knows what it is. And um, so, Davidson went back to all this stuff. He prepared a book for publication. He now saw that he had 40 different poems by Yanai. And he made, within a year or two, he had a book ready for publication. Um, later on, a scholar noticed that as marvelous as this discovery was, there was also something grotesque about it, because this stuff had been lying there in front of everybody's nose, noses for 20 years, and nobody noticed. How is it that nobody noticed? Anyway, that was just the beginning. Uh, Davidson's work was eventually picked up in Berlin uh, at a place called the Schocken Institute. Okay, and now a word from our sponsor. Okay, uh, this, <laughs> this is Zalman Schocken, who um, was a remarkable figure, a man of, um, he was an incredible entrepreneur. First of all, he ran a whole chain of extremely successful department stores throughout Germany. Um, this is, you can see his name across the bottom, um, Schocken. Um, he was also the kind of Built cultural, by the, the best by, architects of the right. day. This is Eric Mendelssohn. Eric Mendelssohn. Um, and he was a kind of cultural visionary. He had this vision. He was also a great patron. He, he supported some of the greatest uh, German-Jewish intellectuals of the last century, um, kept uh, Gershom Scholem in marzipan and uh, good suits, among others. Um, and he and also called him. Well, yeah, Scholem called him the mystical merchant. Um, and, and he also ran a publishing house, in fact, Shocken Books, which will be publishing our book tomorrow. Um, and so it was. He also, though, was a serious um, manuscript collector and a book collector. And in 1930, he established in Berlin something called the Institute for the, for the Study of Hebrew Poetry, which was basically um, meant to gather in um, copies of manuscripts from all over the world, Hebrew manuscripts, and especially Geniza manuscripts. Um, and for he had a whole staff of scholars there who set out to decipher them and make some sense of them. In a sense, that institute was really it was like field of dreams. You know, if you build it, they will come. Right. Basically, that was the idea with this, man this institute. If they built a an institute, people would send their manuscripts and copy of manuscripts there, and it actually worked. And so it is that he set up a whole arranged for a whole staff of people, and uh, in particular, uh, this young, uh, intense, shy, especially driven and kind of quietly visionary scholar, one of the many unsung heroes of the Geniza story, a man named Menachem Zulai, um, turned his attention to what he called the terra incognita of Hebrew literature, uh, which is to say the liturgical poetry of late antiquity, especially Byzantine Palestine. 
This was an area that had barely been touched, apart from Davidson's groundbreaking publication, which Zulai later said flashed like lightning across the skies of this scholarly field. What that lightning brief, briefly revealed to Zulai, as though in a dream vision, was the possibility of much, much more. The gaps in Davidson's time-eaten manuscript pages filled in, the discovery of Yanai's poems for the remainder of the Palestinian liturgical cycle, poems by the poets that preceded him and whom he admired, those who followed and perhaps rebelled, in other words, an entire literature embodying the middle millennium of Jewish poetry's 3,000-year history. Far too little was known about that period, said Zulai, though it had given Norman of Judaism its shape and character. In my dream, he wrote, I see some 30 volumes containing the work of the writers of sacred poetry throughout the generations, those whose hymns now languish in the Geniza. Call it as many did a vision of dry bones returning to life, or to take up an appropriately Egyptian metaphor courtesy of Schechter's Cambridge walking companion, James Fraser, in his monumental golden bow, a gathering of the limbs of Osiris, the god who had taken the Egyptians into civilization, introducing them to the cultivation of grain and a social structure that would ensure nourishment and sustenance. Osiris spread his message abroad and then returned home, only to be murdered and dismembered by envious rivals and kin who scattered the parts of his body far and wide until his sister Isis gathered these severed parts together and using her sorcery brought Osiris back to life so that his genius would always be at work in the world. Bones or limbs or both, they were lying in Geniza collections around the globe, mostly in Cambridge, but also in Oxford and London and Berlin, Frankfurt and Leningrad, Warsaw, New York, Philadelphia and Paris. And month by month, week by week, packages containing photostats of, these, photograph, photostats of these new manuscripts were dispatched to the Institute. For five years, and these are years were 1933 to 1938 in Germany, so you know what's happening there, Zulai's efforts were concentrated almost solely on this ingathering. But the pieces of the puzzle were scrambled in a heap that boggled even the very best minds. The work, it seemed, called for an almost impossible combination of vision and patience, passion and science, and perhaps for a kind of ISIS-like magic, albeit one born of tremendous labor and prodigious powers of recall. Memory, said Zulai, is the finest index. For while it was tempting to dive in and cherry pick one's way through the chaos, looking for work by major poets in whatever form one might find it and tossing the rest to the side, Zulai realized that this would not do. He would have to begin at the beginning like the 18-year-old Israel Davidson returning to first grade and sift through the thousands of copies of fragments with loving care and steady devotion, as he himself put it, likening the work to a sacred task that has no measurable worth and would never come to an end. Each photostat is a prayer congealed, he wrote. Each page a poem frozen in place. The dust of the generations has to be shaken from them. They have to be woken and revived. And the workers are busy. And a day doesn't pass without resurrection. And at the center of it all stands Yanai. And just to give you, before we leave Yanai and give you our last example, I want to give you one sense of what it is that the big fuss was about, right? What is, what is, what is it about Yanai's poetry? Yeah, um, I think, though, maybe yeah. we should skip the poem because we're not going to have time to do that. Okay, if you, yeah. read, well, if you buy the book, you will find out what's inside the poem. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Dina will give you the last Okay, example. sorry yeah. to, to do that. It's worth buying a book just for that. But okay, now we're going to skip ahead um, into the middle of the century and to a completely different case of... Well, I should, I would just say, yeah. uh, by the way, to finish that, when Zulai published his book in 1938, it was, it contained 800 yeah. poems by and I. So we went from one poem to 40 poems, to 800 poems, and it was also the last Hebrew book published in Germany before World War II. Yeah. 
Okay, so now for something completely or not completely different. Um, into the middle of the century, and another classic case of this sort of Geniza devaluation, revaluation. Um, oops, oh, here, this was actually the poem he was going to read. Well, That's you can see it. Okay. This man, um, this funny-looking little man in the middle, um, S.D. Goitain, um, whom I think if any of you have heard of the Geniza, you have probably heard of Goitain. Um, he was a German-born um, Arabist ethnographer, philologist. He was actually the first professor of Islam at the Hebrew University, and he said that when he gave his first lecture in 1927, the entire student body showed up because they wanted to learn something about the Arabs, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, and he, though, for his first... Um, the first half of his life, more than that, he actually, as he said, engaged in a kind of studious avoidance of the Geniza. He was very busy with lots of other things. He had all kinds of other academic work that he was doing and all kinds of other work besides. Um, he had actually come to Palestine in 1923 on the boat with Gershom Sholem. Um, but it was only in 1948, in the middle of the War of Independence, or call whatever you want to call the war in 1948, um, he was 48 years old himself. And he had what amounted to an extremely fruitful midlife crisis. And he basically decided, almost in a flash, to change his life and to devote himself to the Geniza. And that's also quite an incredible story that we write about in the book and that we don't have time for now. Um, but basically, from that moment on, he was, as he put it, the Genezer. This is how he referred to himself. Um, and it's really possible to talk about before Goitain and after Goitain, BG and AG, in terms of the Geniza. Because before Goitain, it had really been the case that most Geniza scholars of, in general, were interested in sort of major trends in Jewish pietism. They were interested in, uh, it was a Victorian idea of what mattered. This was set in a major key for full orchestra, and it's very much along Carlyle's lines of the history of the world is a biography of great men. Great men mattered. Famous men, the heads of the academies in Babylonia and Palestine and, and um, you know, Maimonides and so on. Goitain was interested in a whole other kind of person. And he really he talks about the Geniza people. It's a kind of cast of thousands of shopkeepers and Jewish mothers and brides and beggars and people who had, before he came around, had basically been nameless and faceless. And he set about the task of giving them names and faces, or he wasn't giving them those names. He was finding those names in the documents. And it was the documents that interested Goitain. And by that, I mean literally documentary materials, um, letters and marriage contracts and bills of lading. Um, he actually kind of wryly referred to a, one catalog of a quite famous university library that described a particular Geniza document as being a business letter and therefore valueless. Um, and of course, that was exactly the kind of thing that, that excited him and that stirred his imagination. Now, that was 1948 when he first turned himself to the Geniza. And at that point, he was interested in the India trade, these North African Jewish traders who would ply their, uh, ply their wares, as I said, from all the way from Fustat to India. Um, and so he would spend summers um, and early autumns in England doing work with the Geniza manuscripts at Cambridge and Oxford. And in, at this time, S.D. Goitain basically, we might say, rediscovered the Geniza. And we actually found a letter while we were working on this book at the bottom of a box at the, in the Jewish National Library, dated October 8th, 1955, written um, to his wife, Teresa, who was back in Jerusalem. And here we have shades again of Matilda and Schechter. The letter begins at the very top. It says in Hebrew, Sodi, secret. And he's sort of written sideways today. It's very hot. Um, but he swore her to secrecy. And he explained, he said that I've never imagined that I'd have news and discoveries this time. And 
explained that he had been led by the librarian, the chief librarian at Cambridge had taken him upstairs to the seventh floor of the Cambridge University Library, and this is the new library that was built in the 30s, um, and had showed him, um, I'm having trouble reading here, um, actual crates as they were sent from Egypt in 1897. And in the more official account um, that he published later, he described how the librarian had taken him up the stairs, and he saw, Goitein saw a crate of dimensions I have never seen in my life. In huge letters, the address Alexandria Liverpool was written on it, but also in another script, the word, can anybody guess? Rubbish, okay. Um, in the years since Schechter had left and since the librarian who he'd been working with had died, these boxes had basically been put aside as, as Useless, valueless, uh, nothing of any interest or value was the way one librarian referred to it, a hopeless case. They had been slated for incineration. So Goitein, at this point, took one look and understood this was anything but garbage. Um, this was every bit as valuable as the original series. This actually would become what was known as the new series, and it would more than double the size of the Cambridge collection. Um, and Just, the, you know, saved from the fire, literally. Literally. Um, and there was an incredible range of documents, the same range that there was in the original boxes, um, and he set about working to decipher it, as he was also working to decipher all the documentary materials in all the other collections around the world. Um, and in that sense, it's very much like what Zulai was doing, gathering these things from everywhere. Um, though we should say that even Goitein had his blind spots, and this is actually a photograph from the 1970s. We have these scholars going through a crate of things that he hadn't considered worthy. So it's sort of this ongoing story, and this collection became known as the additional series, and there's always more. It seems. And there was also important things in that. Very much so, yeah. Um, now, it's important to say, that, of course, that what's important about Goitain isn't just what he found. It's really what he did with what he found. And here, you know, again, in terms of what was valued and what wasn't valued, one thing that hadn't been previously valued was the Arabic language itself. And Goitain was a, a philologist, and he was an Arabist, and he completely commanded Arabic. This is just a single... Um, index card from what he called his Geniza Labor Laboratorium, um, which is some 10,000 index cards in which he has gone through maniacally detailing. This is just one document. Here in the middle, this is the class mark. Taylor Schechter is the Cambridge collection. This is the particular class mark. And he's gone through this particular thing. It says prices in Sicily. And he's working his way through pepper, uh, camphor, dragon's blood, gizzy silk, clove, sandalwood, and so on. These are the prices. Here are the Arabic words. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a, I mean, th and this is just one. We pretty much just picked it at random. There's some 10,000 of these. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's a kind of, it's just, the scale is just boggling. And really, the way he worked, you can see, this is an incredible, very Germanic mind for detail. But we came to think of him as a kind of a pointillist. This is someone who, for each of these dots, I mean, he worked very hard at each dot, but ultimately, what he created was this incredible canvas, um, this world that these people inhabited. And now, what was that world? I mean, Goitein writes about everything from um, you know, the medieval Mediterranean postal service to the distribution of free bread to the poor in Fustat to, um, to he found, this is again just one particular document, but this is a check. There was this man in Fustat who wrote 20 checks in a single month. And this is one of them. And Goitein didn't just find a checkbook. He had to piece it together from um, Geniza collections all over the world. And so you have these letters of payment. So he writes about that. He writes about um, sleeping sickness and pigeon racing and messianism and attitudes toward homosexuality and remarriage and pretty much you name it. Um, the, the, the book that um, resulted is really books. It's this incredible magnum opus. It's five volumes plus a volume of, of just an index. Um, and he completed it just a few months before his death. 
and he called it a Mediterranean society. And so we've uh, maybe I'll state our welcome, but uh, to end of our story. But just as final proof that the Geniza is the gift that keeps on giving, this tin box was discovered in the Swiss National Library just a few years ago, again, partly by chance, partly because a scholar was doing his job and checking on things. It turned out to belong to a uh, Swiss papyrologist, somebody who's dealing with Greek papyri, and uh, when it was the 100th anniversary of something or other of his, they pulled out his collection and they had found this box, and it says, you can see there's a script on it in Hebrew handwriting, it says, that these are Hebrew documents that were found in Old Cairo in 1897 and purchased near the Ben Ezra synagogue. And they opened them in whatever it was, 2008 or something like that. It turned out to contain immaculate Geniza documents of every sort that we've been talking about, some incredibly important finds. The actual book catalog, the scholarly edition of the text that were, uh, that were found here were published just a few months ago. It had been in preparation for quite a long time. Um, all this, and then there was another amazing discovery in Jerusalem uh, not long ago. You know, every pretty much month things are coming up, but all this adds up when you put it all together, brings us back to where we began with the book of Ben Sira, and in particular, one one special line um, from the book of Ben Sira, um, and it restores at the same time also the etymological. Ooh. Oh no! Uh, oh, it's no, uh, don't do that, don't do that. Okay. It's all they know what it is. They're telling us something. Okay. Uh, in any case, it restores this etymological sense of the word Geniza of both an archive, inadvertent, unconscious archive, and a treasure. And the line that we wanted to end with is actually the line that became the epigraph for our book. Uh, in Ben Sira, it says in Hebrew, Hochmat munava utsar mustar, mato hem, hidden wisdom and concealed treasure. What is the use of either? This lecture was presented through the generosity of Richard and Barbara Franke, whose creation of the Franke Visiting Scholar Artist Fellowship is intended to ensure ongoing interdisciplinary exchange and creative debate at the Yale's Whitney Humanities Center and at Yale in general. Mr. Cole and Ms. Hoffman spoke on April 4, 2011 at the Whitney Humanities Center.